Welcome to another edition of Barnes Law School. Uh, after the break, we'll discuss what, which is worse, which is more of a threat, the panic in response to the pandemic or the pandemic itself. has pushed a panic about the pandemic related to the virus. And in response to it, many of our public officials, particularly at the state level, but also many around the world, have taken a sort of uniform response to it, which has been to entirely shut down large parts of our civil society and economy. The question is, is that response necessary, uh, efficient, and less of a threat than the disease itself purportedly poses. Well, they have certain assumptions. First, the various uh, modeling uh, analysis that's out there that was done on behalf of or for the benefit of various governments that almost everybody is relying upon presumes a certain exponential rate of growth of the virus, a presumes a certain contagion rate of the virus, presumes a certain serious illness <clears throat> a hospitalization rate of the virus, and a certain mortality rate of the virus. It also assumes that certain mitigation efforts will have a certain level of deterrence against the virus, the virus over time. There are several, uh, those assumptions are that due to the exponential rate of growth, that almost, a, they assume almost a 100% contagion rate, that almost everybody can get infe inf infected, and that the only factor controlling that will be uh, their access to other people that have the infection, their close continuous contact with such people. Due to the nature that the virus is airborne, that the virus can be left on various uh, physical objects for days in ways that is communicable. Uh, and so they assume that basically the disease is universally communicable, easily communicable, that, the, that everybody's as susceptible as anyone else to getting it, and that the mortality rates, serious illness, hospitalization rates are constant over time. Uh, because of that, and because it's an exponential rate of growth and an uh, ex almost exponential rate of infection, uh, that you know, the that for each person infected, at least two more will become infected, and so forth. Uh, that led to sort of disastrous scenarios that the, these various models were forecasting, including overrunning hospitals with people uh, who suffer from severe illness. Uh, and mortality risk, needing emergency ICU care, often with ventilators in hospitals beyond the capacity of hospitals to provide those beds or care. Uh, and both would be needed. You need the hospital, you need the, in terms of its staff, its location, you need the bed, <coughs> you need the nurse and other people to take care of it, uh, and the doctors, uh, and the medical staffing in general, and you need the equipment to provide the care, and everything else that goes into the care, in terms of the facility of the hospital and taking care of any ill patient. Um, so the assumption was this is an exponential disease that will rapidly spread, that's universally contagious, that everybody will get, and the net effect of it will be we're going to have these really high hospitalization rates and these really high mortality rates 
Uh, they the discussion early on was that it's going to be 30 to 40 times greater than the flu in terms of the mortality rate, the hospitalization rate, comparably uh, way higher than the flu according to these models and estimates and projections. Based on that, that that is what triggered the panic in response to the pandemic by the public officials. What has been the response? The response has been that the only identified mitigation techniques are to shut down the entire civil society for the most part and shut down almost the entire economy. Order people to stay at home, order people to be socially distant from others, order people to not interact or interface with others, order people to not provide a wide range of services to others, uh, order people to uh, not travel, basically kill the hospitality business, the transportation, large parts of the transportation business, large parts of the uh, the tourism business, <coughs> large parts of restaurants and bars and clubs and concerts and any public gathering place, shut down schools and colleges. These extraordinary uh, efforts to mitigate the purported uh, risks from the disease. And so the question is, is, is this response, is this panic response uh, less of a threat than the pandemic? Will it actually solve the problems posed by the pandemic? And are the modelers correct? Well, as a lawyer and as a trial lawyer, I tend to try to look at any case or any matter through the prism, through the filter, the frame of what a trial would be. What evidence could be presented? What cross and direct examination could occur? What arguments would be persuasive to an independent, impartial jury? And so in looking at it from this context, I also have a lot of experience, as a, as a good trial lawyer will, you'll have a lot of experience dealing with experts. You do direct examination of experts. You do cross-examination of experts. You do arguments to judges and juries about the persuasive effectiveness of those experts. Um, and in that process, you become a little bit of a mini-expert in their field because you almost have to be in order to meaningfully cross-examine them, meaningfully propose their testimony in direct examination, meaningfully argue their persuasive qualities to a judge or jury. You also, in that process, learn that you shouldn't always defer to experts, that just being an expert doesn't mean they are the ultimate and only authority on any subject. Also, being an expert on, say, epidemiology doesn't necessarily make you an expert on statistics, doesn't necessarily make you an expert on human psychology, doesn't necessarily make you an expert on economics, doesn't necessarily make you an expert on human life. Not only that, often your knowledge is limited and constricted to book learning and is, uh, doesn't have the wide range of life experience that often is critically informative in this context. Also, in the current academic context, many of our experts live in a consensus-driven culture that, that uh, discourages dissent and dissuades independent iconoclastic opinions from being presented, which might explain, as Eric Weinstein and Peter Thiel and others have argued, the extraordinary decline in inventiveness over the last 40-plus years in the Western world coming out of the sciences or the academy compared to what happened before them. Before them, they were solving diseases that had been around for centuries. Uh, now that the best thing they can do is basically technology inventions, for the most part. And so the, there's a culture of conformity that is crushing independence of thought, but also simply the quality of thought coming out of the academy. So many of the people that are experts lack diverse life experience, often essential to making meaningful assessments and decisions, but also come from a culture of conformity that celebrates uh, uh, it's, it's sort of the kind of thought process that doesn't question or challenge conventional wisdom or established opinion. And the net effect of which is to diminish inventiveness and often to increase the inaccuracy rate of these individuals. After all, it was our elites and, uh, uh, and so-called experts 
who extended the Cold War beyond that which was necessary, got us into one Iraq war and another Iraq war and an Afghanistan war, got us into the financial crisis of 2008, multiple successive credit problems. These same elites have not really had a track record that tell you you should trust them, that you should put all your confidence in them, least of all panic the entire world into sinking the economy and crushing civil society for them. So that comes from another aspect, along with just having experience with expert witnesses, not to necessarily defer to them because they have a couple of letters after their last name. And in that context, I started looking at this as a way I would look at uh, doing a cross-examination of some of these modelers if I was in a real-life trial. And what I found was that a lot of their arguments were very questionable. A lot of their assumptions deeply dubious, particularly the models of exponential ceaseless growth. So, for example, what was striking right away is what you're looking at when you're trying to assess an expert's model is what information went into it. What was the input that produced the output? And in this context, what was extraordinary was there was a real lack of comparison to historical records. If we looked at over the last century of viruses, how, often, how do viruses act? How do they tend to react? How, how do they infect uh, a population? Is, do they reach an inflection point where it just they stop having the same infection rate success? You would think that anybody doing a model today would look at the history of epidemiology and incorporate some of what we know from past viruses. In almost every model that I've seen published, that's not done at all. Not only that was the first problem. The second problem was they were relying almost exclusively on very premature data. In other words, they were presuming that whatever happened in the first 30 days at a certain country or a certain location would keep happening forever. Even though this assumption was a massive assumption and was actually contrary and ahistorical given the public record of past viruses that often have very different stages of susceptibility in the population, very different levels of contagion rate. Indeed, in the last century, no virus has really been successfully, no dangerous virus has really been successful at uh, infecting 70 to 80 percent or 100 percent of the population like some of these models extraordinarily assume. Indeed, the other aspect was these models were not adjusting for changes in the data. They were not adjusting for different data from different places. They were just presuming that what happened here at this place at this time will definitely happen forever, forevermore, even when in that place at that time, it didn't keep happening that way over the next 30 days. Indeed, a uh, scientist out of Israel noted that, in fact, the China virus was changing uh, in China, that in Wuhan, and that the models were wrong, and then he looked at it and he said, you know what, I see I see a declining rate of, uh, of exponential expansion. That instead of it just going up like this, it was starting to go like that. And so he forecast that the virus in Wuhan would have no new deaths at the end of March. Well, it's turned out he's already right. By contrast, many of the uh, other modeling experts were predicting that there would be tens of millions of deaths around the world uh, by this point, or at least soon, within, uh, soon hereafter. So here again, you had people who were looking at the data, letting the data talk to them, not letting their own biases or presumptions talk to them, adjusting information in live time, and they were coming up with very different outcome projections than were the big modelers, the supposed experts. 
That was problem number two. So problem number one was they failed to include historical record information and limited input in general. Second, they failed to update it to incorporate variable data that was to change the assumptions and expectations they previously had. It was almost like they'd become invested in the outcomes of their model and refused to look at contrarian information or interpretations of the data that they had. But in addition to that, the third aspect was the real risk of this particular disease uh, was very limited. It turned out that the real mortality risk and serious hospitalization risk, those people needing hospitalization in order to survive, uh, that that group of people uh, disproportionately were, the, were people with the least level of life expectancy in the world. So, uh, in other words, there are people that usually had one, two, three, four other diseases, often uh, over 80 years old, uh, the people with severe respiratory illness, in which what was really happening was these were people who science would tell us uh, were likely to pass away within a year uh, or two, and they simply passed away a little bit sooner because of a different disease than the one that was ultimately going to get them. And to completely shut down the economy and civil society simply to extend the lives of those with the most limited life expectancy and change the disease that they had is a dramatic action that should be thought through and publicly discussed. If I was someone in that position, if I was an 81-year-old person with four different diseases that had a life expectancy of less than 18 months, I would not want to see my relatives, my family, my friends have their economy ripped away from them, their jobs stripped of them, their lives denied them solely for the basis of changing what disease I was likely to die from. Now, maybe other people have a different opinion, reasonable and understandable, but it's a debate and discussion that needs to be had in a civil society, one that implicitly takes place every day. So that was another error and flaw in the model's assumptions. In addition, uh, that was not fully explored in the mitigation recommendations that they made. There were other aspects of the uh, models that didn't really make a lot of sense in light of the mitigation strategies. For example, Many of these uh, modeling assumptions assume that the, that the no immunity or vaccine would develop either by herd immunity in terms of the general public or by any other means within two years. And if they were right, then their mitigation efforts were basically to shut down all of the economy and civil society for two years, which they didn't look at, well, what would that cost? What would that cost in terms of the economy? What would that cost in terms of health? What would that cost in terms of human lives? Could that, in fact, destroy the very hospital capacity they're obsessed with preserving by shutting down the economy for two years? <clears throat> a look at the third world. Is the hospital capacity there the kind we want here? Uh, what happens when we, we create a third world economy here? Is that what we want to do? This is not even assessed. This is not even evaluated. This is not even considered or contemplated in the models driving the decisions of political decision makers around the entire world. In addition, once you dug into the data, you saw that the things that, in fact, it appeared that mid these mitigation efforts had very little effect. For example, in Wuhan, China, they tracked anyone who had close continuous contact at the very inception of the disease with someone who was infected. What did they find? And they tested these individuals. They found that 95% of them did not get the disease. They were, in fact, effectively immune from it. They weren't given a vaccine, but they were just effectively immune from the infection. A similar experiment happened in live time, not intended to be an experiment, but became one from a, a statistical perspective, when the cruise ship Diamond Princess was docked and quarantined for three weeks off the coast and no one could escape the ship, uh, where there was a, an extensive outbreak of the virus. Uh, here in this context, we had a disproportionately elderly population and a perfect Petri dish for the expansion of the disease. 
if the disease was truly exponential, pretty much everybody on the ship should get the disease within three weeks. Here, you, because the, the food by the chefs was by people who were diseased, turned out. Uh, everything that was being cleaned was by people who were diseased. Uh, and then you had large numbers of people who already had the disease on the ship. Well, what happened? 83% of the people never even got infected. How did that happen if we are going to have this exponential rate with a 100% contagion rate like these modelers claim is going to happen? When they're exposed in a perfect Petri dish to get the infection for three weeks and more than 80% don't get it, just like more than 95% of people exposed to it didn't get it in Wuhan, China. So these were contrarian data points that guess what these modelers do? They completely ignore it. Don't even deal with it. Don't even address it. Don't even incorporate it. Don't even discuss it. Don't even debate it for the most part. This is a frightening lack of uh, empirical methodology, of trustworthy methodology, for us to give credit to an expert's opinions. How they come to their, de their decision-making process, the means they use, and the information they employ is essential to assessing how trustworthy that information is. The weaker the methodology, the less trustworthy an expert's opinion is. And this was showing up repeatedly and recurrently throughout these modeling estimates. Failure to include historical data, historical reference points for comparable viruses or viruses in general. A failure to include and incorporate updated data as it changed. A failure to incorporate other examples and statistical examples that refuted statistically and otherwise the, the empirical assumptions of their projections. This was a repeated, and a failure to even consider whether their mitigation efforts have collateral consequences. For example, imagine this is really like the old people say, the old saying that says, you know, uh, the best way to save this village is to burn it down. Because if we burn it down, the village can't be attacked. Now, we know that's terrible logic, but it's logic that's actually been employed at various times over human history in various contexts. That appears to be precisely what some of the logic was of the people pushing the mitigation efforts for the model. They assumed there'd be no side effects to shutting down the entire economy in terms of the mitigation effect on the disease or public health. No side effect of shutting down civil society and isolating people in mass for days, weeks, months, maybe years over time on what that has on the health effect and impact on the civil society or on the efforts to mitigate. For example, assuming that, well, if we uh, lock everybody up, then we can extend the hospitalization over time, presumes that the effect, economic and social effect of that lockup doesn't deter independently the ability to provide hospital care. Uh, again, look at third world countries. How, how good are they able to provide a, a various effective health care for the elderly? That's just not a practicable thing when you live in a society that lives day to day. And yet that's precisely the kind of society many of these modelers were requiring in order to solve the pandemic problem. They were creating a problem bigger than what they were proposing as a solution. The cure was worse than the disease. And this problem recurred and repeated in multiple other contexts. As you dug into the data, you found a lot of contrarian points that suggested that basically we were taking massive risk for the speculative possibility of a contagion for the speculative possibility of these mitigating efforts even working uh, in order to uh, basically just change the nature that what was listed on the uh, uh, as the cause of death for people who are already in a stage where they were not likely to live very long anyhow, no matter what we did. And so in that context, as another example of this, we are seeing some different approaches in terms of mitigation. So for example, 
if there was going to be this pandemic exponential growth rate, then we should have seen it spread throughout China. And while it would go down because of mitigation efforts, not just completely disappear. Yet by the end of March, that's pretty much what's happened in Wuhan. On top of that, we shouldn't see Singapore and South Korea and Hong Kong and Russia and other countries that have not employed any form of economic shutdown experience nowhere near the rate of growth of death and hospitalizations that these modelers were predicting and projecting. In the same manner, we shouldn't see Iran, a country that has refused to shut down its economy, that's only it's shut down public gatherings for the most part, but that's almost it. Other than that, in terms of schools, colleges, things like that, they've shut down. Not anything with day-to-day life. And yet they are experiencing the same rate of growth to the same timetable as occurred in China. That should not happen if the modelers were right. You shouldn't have a country refuse to take the mitigation efforts that the modelers demand and achieve the same outcomes as if, they, uh, uh, as if the people that used the other mitigation techniques that were being recommended by the modelers. Uh, so you also are seeing very radically differences in data. Uh, you're seeing, for example, in Germany and Northern Europe, very low death rates, very low hospitalization rates amongst those tested. And here was where some of the propaganda points were spread. For example, one of the propaganda points was this flu, this is 30 times more dangerous than the flu. I initially accepted that as just on face value and then came across someone who pointed out that they were using different standards. That in fact, in the case of the, of the virus, they were using the mortality rate amongst those with confirmed tests for the virus. Whereas for the flu, they were using an estimated number of how many people they think got the flu, but not the same confirmed test ratio. If you look at the confirmed test ratio, the flu kills about 10% of the people that have a confirmed test for the flu. Whereas this virus was killing far less than that, in some cases 10 times less than that, in some cases 20 times, 30 times less than that. So, uh, and in the worst case scenario, at least double, twice as less as that. So this, this virus is 30 times more dangerous than the flu is not based on the same empirical data that they're trying to present it as. Equally, they would often present charts where you'd have you know data on this hand and one on this hand and always magically, no matter which country you're looking at or which stat you're looking at, always exponential rate, growth rate shown on those charts. You have to look close at the charts to realize they're changing the number on the left-hand side or on the bottom side. Uh, because if you had the same number on the left-hand side and the bottom side, same number here, same number here, for all the countries and all of the conditions they're describing, then you would all of a sudden see much lower growth rates and some, some high, some like this, some like this, some almost flat. It would completely contradict the narrative they're pitching. So these deceptive techniques were misleading statistical analysis, uh, misleading statistical reports, misleading statistical charts, was signs of someone uh, of a press trying to create a pandemic, trying to create a panic from a pandemic, where the pa- where the panic from the pandemic is the real plague, compared to the one they're saying is going to be the plague. The that sort of structured uh, uh, erroneous analysis happened recurrently and repeatedly. In addition, there was a constant attempt to confuse people into believing that they needed to be tested even if they had no symptoms of the disease. We don't do this in any context. Not only that, the testing is expensive. So the, to, to use valuable limited resources to test people who are not in fact sick only creates uh, problems in testing people who are sick and getting adequate, effective, quick treatment. Not only that, these kind of tests, testing a novel virus that hasn't existed before until a month ago or two months ago, 
is always a little bit risky. And the more you test people who aren't sick, the way the statistics works, the higher likelihood you start getting false positives and false negatives because you need something to compare it to. So you want to test people that clearly don't have it and those who do have it, but you don't want to be in a situation where you're testing tons of people who don't have it compared to those who do because what that will do is it will distort the data and you'll start getting false positives and false negatives. They'll make the testing counterproductive. So none of this was being analyzed or considered. Instead, the press pitched exponential growth, massive death rate, massive hospitalization rate, massive serious illness rate, and you have to get tested now. And if everybody isn't tested, then it's going to be a disaster. And not only that, the mortality rate and the hospitalization rate, which they've already exaggerated and lied about, or projected based on pure speculation they really don't have empirical basis for, or ignored contrarian data about, not only that, that's not going to stay the same as you increase the number of people tested. So, for example, each year about 97% of the people are never tested for the flu, but they're believed to get the flu. 97% of the people the CDC believes get the flu are never tested for the flu. And so what that means is the estimated rate of people who get the flu and its mortality rate is much lower than if you use their confirmed basis. If you use the flu relationship test standard, uh, then you would have shut down civil society and the economy based on what's happened now every single year for the last 20 years. So here's what's happened because the, the number of the ratio is about 10% of the people who test for the flu will die from the flu each year. But the actual rate is, less, is more like one-tenth of one percent because, again, almost 97% of people they estimate never test for the flu who get the flu. So you might have a whole bunch of people with the virus, and many of whom haven't been tested because they're not sick, because they're not in a hospital, because they're not dead, right? Uh, the, that consequently, as you test them, you'll increase the number of people who have infected but you're not increasing the number of people in the hospital or the number of people who are dead just by testing more people. And yet the media was trying to pretend <clears throat> that it would be a flat rate, that, hey, the mortality rate is 3% amongst those with confirmed tests. So that means every person we additionally test suddenly is, has a 3% risk of death. That's not how statistics works. That's being deliberately dishonest and deliberately deceptive. If we did that in the context of the flu, we would create a fake panic suggesting that, 10 times more people, 50 times more people, in this case, 97 times more people, would die from the flu than are actually going to die from the flu. And so this is just bad analysis, misleading data. This has happened recurrently. And based on this misleading data, we have shut down the economy and shut down the civil society, or large parts of it, all around the world. What might that do? <clears throat> well, just consider the health impact. Various studies have shown that unemployment can increase the death rate by 30 to 40. One point increase in unemployment can increase the number of deaths by 30 to 40,000 people. They're talking about a 10% increase in the unemployment rate in just the next two months. You're talking about three to 400,000 people. That is likely more, that is, or that is more than many of the uh, uh, people who have looked at this have said will actually die from this disease. And those are people with much longer life expectancy for whom the social consequence of their death is far more uh, impactful. You know, when if you, it's a big if your grandparent passes away, that's terrible and tragic. If your parent passes away when you're 5 years older, both of them do, that can have dramatic social consequences beyond its trauma and tragedy. So, and our society always understands that and accepts that and and, and adjusts risk accordingly. It triages as necessary. Um, and yet that's precisely what these modelers effectively were calling for. 
uh, calling for that kind of trade-off. Let's kill off a bunch of 35-year-olds in exchange for the mere possibility of protecting the life of an 81-year-old who may be close to dead anyway. These are uh, difficult uh, policy choices to make, but they're ones the public should be informed about, not hidden from. In addition, through the part of the mitigation effects, are the it, it causes uh, delays in the supply chain or complete interruptions in the supply chain, complete lack of certain services, certain businesses never recover. Uh, you can't ever recover the time value of that contribution of labor. It is gone, and it is gone forever. And so the net effect of these things, not only that, you're talking about an economy that's very interdependent around the globe, that the financial system is dependent on huge amounts of cash in the overnight markets uh, in Wall Street, the repo market in particular. Uh, when you have the Fed talking about putting up $1 trillion every day just to the repo market, you, you get a sense of how crazy this has become. So you're talking about the economy being projected at having a contraction rate of 24% after a, second, after a first quarter decline of 6%. In the next uh, two quarters, according to Goldman Sachs, that's a 30% decline in less than four months by the time frame they're looking at. 30% decline in four months. That hasn't happened in the history of keeping this stat. They're talking about unemployment in the double digits, which when you adjust for the unemployment statistical changes over time, is equivalent to a 20-25% unemployment rate, which is what it was at the peak in the Great Depression. Those are the kind of numbers you're talking about. The idea that you can just bounce back from it overnight, we tried that. We declined precipitously over a six-month time period in 1929-1930. And guess what happened? It took us 12 years plus a world war to ever get to back to the same level of capacity. So the assumption you can just turn the spigot back on ain't so when you've drained the well. And that's what this is what's effectively happening. So that is why some of us have suggested that we should target. There's something in the law called narrowly tailored remedies for compelling public interest. Here, the compelling public interest is protecting the elderly, the infirm, the immune compromised, the vulnerable. We can do so with narrowly tailored means targeting their protection. That's the population that should have been socially self-segregated. That's the population that needed to employ social distancing. That's the population we could take out of the economy and reimburse for with reasonable means and accommodations. That's the part of the uh, civil society we needed to build more hospital capacity for. And that's the part of society we needed to focus on immunes and treatments for. Uh, because they're the ones at risk of serious hospitalization. They're the ones at risk of death. Uh, they're the ones at risk of con continued problems afterwards. And that's what we should have focused on. And not shut down kids' playgrounds, <clears throat> not shut down every school, not shut down every college, not shut down every restaurant, not shut down every business, not shut down almost all of civil society, not shut down almost all of our economy. But we could have instead simply focused on that group of people targeted remedies for that group of people. Let's build the additional hospital capacity. China did it within a week. We can, do, we can do much better than China can. So we are fully capable. In fact, it's already happening all across the country. The media is not reporting on it much, but they're expanding. They're using soccer fields, football fields, empty buildings, empty hotels to build massive, uh, massive additional hospital capacity. We're bringing uh, uh, carriers, airline carriers, uh, uh, Navy carriers and Air Force, Air Force carriers into uh, the harbors of our major cities to provide additional 
capacity for hospitalization. So it's more we're more than able and capable of doing that. Um, the we probably need to staff up in ways in, in, that are not necessarily easy, but we can do so as we've done so throughout every war and every conflict we've ever had in terms of adding nurses quickly and effectively. So that is possible to do. Uh, and we can focus on protecting the most vulnerable from the worst possible harm without imposing massive pain on the entire world, without sinking the entire economy, without sinking our civil society and segregating it and socially isolating it from the rest of the universe in the way that we're doing so. Um, and we can do so in a way that avoids all of those collateral consequences. But our politicians are going to be scared by a combination of the press and the experts who say otherwise. And that's what got us World War I. That's what got us World War II. That's what got us the Great Depression in between World War I and World War II. It was the response to World War I that birthed Nazism, that birthed fascism, that birthed, birthed communism, that birthed governments that would kill hundreds of millions of people deliberately and intentionally, not need a disease or a famine to do so. <clears throat> so we should think twice before we sink all of civil society and destroy our economy solely because uh, a, uh, a nerd in a hat has done a little back-of-the-napkin <clears throat> math and thinks that that's what governs the rest of the world. So hopefully our politicians, people like President Trump and others, will operate on their instincts, second-guessing the opinions of these established experts, and not destroy our economy before it's too late. Uh, we can see. Uh, we can all do our own part, exercise reasonable so social distancing and other forms of means of mitigating the spread of the virus, and just as importantly, uh, reaching out to our public officials to have them reassess the current strategy they're on to reemploy America and put America back to work while protecting the most vulnerable from the most serious harm. Thank you for uh, this edition of Barnes Law School, and I uh, hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye.